Welcome to Crossview Radio, a weekly podcast for Wynn County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, if you want to understand human nature, then you are going to need to understand two things, and that is guilt and atonement. A universal principle that you can take to the bank is that man is inescapably religious. And add to that this universal principle, we all carry a guilty burden. I would suggest that it is impossible for any human being to think outside of the box on this issue. We are not only universally sinful, but we universally know that we are sinful. We have an intuition that we have violated justice. Our pressing problem is the problem of guilt, and everywhere you look, people are attempting to deal with their guilt. This is universal, regardless of whether one is a Christian, an atheist, or a Buddhist. No matter what your worldview, I would propose that everyone thinks about how to deal with their guilt. Now, they may not think of it precisely in those exact terms, but they do think of it nonetheless. I'm going to quote today a bit from Rush Juni because he devoted a considerable amount of space in his books uh, to this theme, namely the theme of self-atonement. That is the idea of how one can atone for your own sins. And I'll start off with a quote from his commentary on the Pentateuch, where he says this, quote, Apart from atonement and forgiveness, men are inescapably guilt-ridden, and their reactions are masochistic, self-atonement by self-punishment, or sadistic, self-atonement by punishing others, end quote. To prove this biblically, we can look at Proverbs 28.1, where we read this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. In other words, those with guilty consciences are constantly looking over their shoulders. This is what happened to Joseph's brothers after they sold Joseph into slavery. They were in constant fear of being discovered. In Genesis forty four sixteen, we read this. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves or atone for ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Speaking about this verse, Rush Dooney says, the guilty consciences of the 10 brothers led them to see an unerring predestination by God to punish them for their guilt. Men and women are naturally guilty. Scripture tells us in Romans 2.15 that uh, it says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. The conscience accuses us when we are guilty. This is why, by the way, the conscience feels so much like an independent third party. Most of us understand the feeling, the rather strange feeling, I might add, of having to justify our actions not to others but to ourselves. John Calvin called the conscience an executioner. In light of this, there are several ways in which we seek to atone for our own guilt. And I just want to give a couple of examples of this, and then we'll kind of roll this over into connecting it to the theme of social justice. Masochism is a common way of seeking to atone for guilt. This is, of course, self-harm or cutting of some sort. Uh, Some people engage in a compulsive pattern of continual self-harm, and the reason that many do this is because they feel guilty and feel like they deserve this punishment. And ironically, what ends up happening sometimes is they eventually come to enjoy this self-atonement 
or this self-harm. It gives them kind of a relief valve, uh, a sense of temporary relief from whatever is ailing them, whatever is making them feel guilty. Um, maybe a, a, a simpler example of this, or I should say a more elementary example of this, and as, as silly as this may sound, all of us have probably at one time or another witnessed a child who was embarrassed by something that uh, they did, and uh, he or she begins to bang uh, his or her head up against the wall, and maybe even this child begins to say things like, you know, I'm stupid or I'm dumb or something like that. Um, but you've all probably seen something like that. Maybe the child did something embarrassing. Maybe the child did something wrong. And they engaged in some sort of um, uh, uh, atonement of sorts. Uh, this is why I say that even non-religious people cannot escape the reality of guilt and atonement. They're engaging in a very rudimentary form of self-punishment or self-atonement. Uh, another example of this is depression. Now, I'm not saying that people necessarily want to become depressed because of guilt, but oftentimes people who find themselves depressed for other reasons want to stay depressed because of guilt. You may have heard people mutter something along these lines, you know, I'm depressed and I probably deserve it, or they may say, this depression is just punishment for me for such and such. Um, this kind of thinking prevents a person from seeking the necessary tools to escape the depression. They want to get out of their depression, but they don't want to get out of their depression. They want to escape it, but at the same time, they kind of enjoy it because it satisfies their guilty conscience in some way. Again, I'm not saying all depressed people think this way. I'm saying some do. Uh, another example of this is OCD. I did a podcast series a couple of years ago on this topic, uh, but just one point here will suffice. OCD is where you have an obsession and then you seek to neutralize that obsession with a compulsion or, as I'm going to suggest to us, an atonement. So, for an example, you think that your hands are dirty and that you might infect your guests with bacteria. So what do you do with that guilt? You wash your hands for 30 minutes to atone for that guilt. Or another example of OCD is that you may have an immoral thought and you have to go through a ritualistic prayer uh, in your mind as atonement where you say certain words and you have to say them in a certain order. And then once you do that, you can find freedom from your guilt. And again, this is only a temporary thing. It has to be done again and again and again. Here's another example. Uh, environmentalism. You feel bad that you drive a gas guzzler or you use all this plastic or whatever it might be, but instead of doing something about it, like walking to work or riding your bike, uh, you may atone for your guilt by donating to some Go Green organization. Rush Dooney makes this interesting observation. He says, quote, We must make atonement to the environment and to minority or subordinate peoples, but it is an atonement which is, listen to this, never efficacious and thus never sufficient to end guilt. Modern man's substitutes for Christ ensure perpetual guilt. But guilty men are impotent and easily controlled, so the modern state is ready to create and use guilt to control people. Laying a guilt trip on people is a popular device, end quote. 
You can give someone a guilt trip personally, or you can guilt trip an entire nation, or you can guilt trip an entire ethnicity. And that is what is happening in the social justice movement. So let's look at this from that perspective. The social justice movement is characterized by men and women who are straining for atonement, men and women who are desperate to eradicate guilt. Exhibit A, John McWhorter, the Columbia University professor, wrote an article all the way back in 2018 entitled Atonement as Activism. The subtitle tellingly is this, quote, today's conscious Uh, Today's consciousness raising on race is less about helping black people than it is about white people seeking grace, end quote. In the article, McWhorter says that for all of today's conversations surrounding race, very little is done to help blacks in a meaningful way. Rather, white people feel like they have atoned for their sin by their activism. Um, what uh, McWhorter says here in the article is this, quote, white privilege is the secular white person's original sin, present at birth and ultimately ineradicable. One does, not, one does one's penance by endlessly attesting to this privilege in hope of some kind of forgiveness, end quote. Then he says this, he says, this new cult of atonement is less about black people than white people. He calls it a cult. And then he says, what gets lost is that all of this awareness was supposed to be about helping black people, especially poor ones. We are too often distracted from this by a race awareness that has come to be largely about white people seeking grace. For example, one reads often of studies showing that black boys are punished and suspended in school more often than other kids. But then one reads equally often that poverty makes boys, in particular, more likely to be aggressive and have a hard time concentrating. We are taught to assume that the punishments and suspensions are due to racism and somehow ignore the data showing that the conditions too many black boys grow up in unfortunately makes them indeed more likely to act up in school. Might the poverty be the problem to address? But try this purely logical reasoning in polite company only at the risk of being treated as a moral reprobate, end quote. And then uh, one more quote from his article, he says this, another problem is that I am not sure today's educated whites quite understand how unattainable the absolution they are seeking is. There is an idleness in this cult of atonement in that it cannot get whites what they want, end quote. McWhorter is saying that because white people are constantly told they're guilty, they eventually begin to believe it and seek a way to, uh, to atone for that guilt. These white people attempt to atone for this guilt in ways that make them feel better, but in the end, their work doesn't really benefit black people in any meaningful way. James White, of course, once said, there is therefore now much condemnation in the woke church, and that's true enough here. This would explain to me why many times... The social justice movement is largely led by white people. They feel that they need to atone for something, to atone for their guilt. Now, I can't speak to the numbers across the country. If anyone is aware of a study or anything along those lines that breaks down the specific numbers, I'd be interested to see that. Send it my way. I don't know the percentage of whites uh, who are social justice advocates versus the percentage of blacks who are social justice advocates. But I can at least say that most of the social justice advocates I've interacted with here in Wayne County are white. 
and I don't know what motivates each and every one specifically, uh, and I'm not claiming that every single last person has the same motivation, but what I am saying is that there is a system that has been created that thrives on guilt and atonement, and many have fallen prey to it. Rush Dooney says this, guilt leads man to seek a covering, and the meaning of atonement is a covering. In atonement by God, man's sinful person is covered by God's grace. And of course, that's exactly right. What is behind men seeking a covering or seeking good works or social activism? It is oftentimes guilt. Now, note Rush Dooney's comments specifically in the area of ethnicity. Now, before I read this, remember that this was published in 1987, ironically the year I was born, which means that we've been fighting this problem for a long time. He says the following, quote, The black behavior can be recognized as sadistic. The guilt is laid on the white man, and he is punished at every turn, whereas the white behavior is masochistic a readiness to be punished for supposed sins against a black man. In both cases, sin and guilt are intensified, and the likelihood of any sound relationship is lessened. In other words, it drives us apart into more um, disunity with one another. He continues and says, In neither case is a constructive plan of action possible with respect to the problems involved. In other words... Uh, as Rush Juni is saying, the black individual deals the blows and the white person gladly takes it if it means that his sins are atoned for. One of the ways in which we offer atonement is through proposing reparations today. And I really kind of want to shift our attention now to this idea of reparations as atonement for guilt and deal with this biblically. Now, I already addressed this in the first podcast uh, in discussing the impossibility of fairly distributing funds through reparations, since there were many black slave masters. And it's a very complicated system to be able to figure out who has to pay who in terms of reparations. But what I would like to do uh, really for the rest of the time today is to look at this from a different angle. Um, and so let's look at a couple of Bible passages and kind of uh, understand what the, the problem is here and how we work through this biblically. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20, 5 to 6, we read uh, where, where we, uh, the Lord says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to th thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 5, 9 to 10 says something similar. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay. Both texts talk about holding children accountable for the sins of their fathers. So there you go. Here is the key text on reparations. We should uh, do this in our modern day and figure out how to distribute the money, uh, so on and so forth. Well, just a second. Ezekiel 18, 2 through 4. Ezekiel says this, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. 
the soul who sins shall die. Interesting. Israelites were saying this proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the fathers have sinned and the children's are being punished for that. And the Lord says that the soul that, that this proverb will no longer be said because of this principle, the soul who sins shall die. In other words, children are not to die for the sins of their fathers. Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30 says something very similar. In those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Okay, again, same idea. Everyone dies for his own iniquity. Now, I have two more passages, but before we get to those, I want to draw a conclusion so far and try to bring some harmony to these four passages. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, you have the Lord saying, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. Okay? And then you have in Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31, God saying, you should not hold children accountable for the sins of their fathers. Here's what we can conclude so far if this is all the data we had. We we would conclude that God has reserved this right for himself at a minimum. At a minimum, before we look at a couple of New Testament texts, at a minimum, God is permitted to hold children accountable for the sins of their fathers, but we are not. That is what we know thus far. Now, I want to bring in two more passages that's going to fill out this principle a little bit more. Luke 11, 47 through 51. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. There's the sins of the fathers. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Interesting. Okay, so now we have Luke 11 that seems to be confirming Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 where God is holding this generation accountable for the sins of their fathers. Again, does this mean we can say yes to reparations? Well, hang on a second. Let me read one more. Matthew 23, 29 through 36. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Again, same idea as Luke 11. 
So Jesus says that the children of the murderers will be held accountable for the sins of the fathers. Okay, what does this mean, and is this leaving the door open for reparations? And the answer is no, it is not leaving the door open for reparations because of at least the minimum of what we said before, and that is in the uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy text, it is God holding them accountable. In the Luke and Matthew text, it is also God holding them accountable. In the Ezekiel and Jeremiah text, we are not permitted to hold people accountable in this way. So it is God doing this. We are not permitted to do this. But there's something else that I want to draw your attention to in Matthew 23. And we read this. Let's, let's zoom in on 34 to 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that. So that what? God sends prophets, wise men, and scribes that they will kill? What's the purpose of this? So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Interesting. Before Jesus tells them that he will hold them accountable for the sins of their fathers, he sends that he says that he will first send them prophets, wise men, and scribes for a purpose. What is that purpose? So that they will kill them and crucify them. Why would God do this? Note again the two words, so that. He does this so that they can be justly and legitimately and fairly held accountable for the sins of their fathers. This is incredibly important to Jesus' argument here, and it cannot be skipped over. Luke says the same thing uh, in his passage as well. He uses the same so that phrase. Something must happen. Something is necessary to happen so that God can hold them accountable for the sins of their fathers. What is that something? And it is this. In order to be held accountable for the sins of their fathers, they must continue in the sins of their fathers. God is not unjustly holding people accountable for some random sin of someone else, of some ancestor. God is saying they are accountable if they continue in the sins of their fathers. He tests them by sending them prophets. And if they kill these prophets or persecute these prophets, then they are consenting. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus specifically uses that word that they consent to the sins of their fathers. So in God's economy, yes, he does hold children accountable for the sins of their fathers, but only if they consent to those sins and continue in those sins. What this means is that God holds children accountable for the sins of their fathers when the children continue in the sins of their fathers. In other words, God will not hold a son accountable if his father murders a man. But if the son also murders a man, then God will hold that son accountable because he approved of his father's actions by continuing in his father's actions. Now, remember 
the Jeremiah and Ezekiel passages. They tell us that we cannot do this, that only God can do this. But let's just pretend, let's do a hypothetical scenario here. Let's pretend that we could do this. How would we implement this in a just and biblical way? Again, I know the Bible forbids us from doing this, but I'm saying, hypothetically speaking, if we could do what God was doing in this scenario, how ought it to be done? If we were to do this in order to be faithful to the Matthew and Luke passages, we would need to do the reparations thing and um, punish the people who are continuing in their father's sins. Okay, so if we're talking reparations and we are talking about uh, the, the, the sin of, of, uh, of slavery, American slavery, uh, man-stealing, and we're talking about all that was going on in that particular time and those sins, and we wanted to punish the children, we would need to ask ourselves this question. Who are the modern slave masters? Who are the modern slave holders? And the answer to this question is that the modern slaveholders is, uh, it is the sex trafficking and the porn industries, at least. We could name others, but this is a huge one going on in our nation right now. And here's where McWhorter's article is relevant, although I'm going to apply it in a slightly different way. You have an entire generation of white people trying to atone for false guilt, and meanwhile, nobody bats an eye at the sex trafficking and porn industries who are abusing, raping, and enslaving young women. And I say shame on every last person who is guilt-tripping people for the sins of their fathers, all the while ignoring modern slavery. What if instead of people putting pronouns in their bios and writing little apologies for living on indigenous lands, we actually work together to end sex trafficking in the porn industry? But no, we're too busy engaging in a bunch of childish nonsense. How have we become distracted from fighting against this sin? What has caused us to be passive and so malleable as a nation to just do uh, nothing of any value? Remember this, more than anything else, we are motivated by guilt and atonement. And if you can convince a people that they are guilty and that a certain action will cure them of their guilt, you have a recipe for driving people in whatever direction you want. People are controllable when they are kept guilty and atoning in this cycle. Guilt, atonement, guilt, atonement, guilt, atonement. The Christian responsibility, then, is to introduce the woke to true and lasting atonement, namely the atonement of Jesus Christ. And what is interesting to me is the entire exodus from the church right now among the deconstructionists. They are trading grace for works, freedom for bondage. Deconstructionists don't escape the problem of guilt and atonement. They replace it with an even bigger problem. The question is not whether you will atone for your guilt, but how you will atone for your guilt. 
Either you will look to the unmerited grace in Christ, or you will look to the never-satisfying, always condemning self-atonement offered by the false gospel of anti-racist activism. Self-atonement can only condemn and never forgive. It can never offer grace. You can accept Christ's atonement as sufficient and efficacious, or you can reject it. But keep in mind that if you reject Christ, you have not escaped religion. You have just substituted Christianity with something else. What have you replaced it with? You've replaced the free grace and free forgiveness of Jesus with a brand of works salvation. In Hebrews 10, we read this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus offers atonement that is one time. It's not repeated like the sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's not something that needs to be repeated like the anti-racist activism. It is a single offering that has perfected Christians for all time. Now, the woke are at least logical in one point, that when they feel guilt, they will do anything to get rid of it. That's logical. Seeking atonement is logical. It's also inescapable for us as human beings. But you have to look for it in the right place. And atonement cannot be found in the philosophies of this world, but only in the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.